The Catalyst, a CEP podcast on bold leadership in the Ocala Metro. Hosted by the Ocala Metro Chamber and Economic Partnership. Sponsored by Douglas Law Firm. And recorded live at Wiley Productions Podcast Studios, located in Ocala, Florida. Welcome to The Catalyst. I'm your host, Natalie McComb, Vice President for the Ocala Metro Chamber and Economic Partnership Foundation, and I'm joined today by Dr. Justin Dean, orthopedic surgeon with the Florida Orthopedic Institute. Great to have you on the show, Dr. Dean. Thank you, Natalie. So while Florida Orthopedic Institute encompasses a large number of physicians and many practice locations throughout the greater Tampa Bay region, I understand that you are new to Ocala. So why did the Institute decide to expand into our market? Yeah, as you had mentioned, the Florida Orthopedic Institute was founded uh, in the Tampa Bay area, in Tampa specifically, and it's actually grown quite rapidly, and now over 150 physicians, making it the largest group in Florida and the fifth largest in the United States. So as they began to expand, this was really a natural fit um, for our group. They have a significant population growth, and and we really felt that that was outpacing uh, the number of physicians and created an unmet need for, for musculoskeletal care. Also, when we think about further extensions up into the Panhandle or Northeast um, Florida, the North Central Florida area was was really a natural fit to complement the legacy group. Mm, Wonderful. And and understanding that you were born and raised in uh, Orlando uh, with degrees from UF and FSU, completing your residency in orthopedic surgery at the University of Florida. So you've certainly spent time in a a variety of communities. Um, What's your experience been like in Ocala so far? It's been really nice. I've been here um, for about three months now, uh, almost four, and I've really been um, impressed with how engaging and genuine Ocala is. It really is a kind of a traditional community that, that while growing quickly, uh, I think still has found a way to preserve that that sort of small town culture, mm-hmm. um, like many of the surrounding communities. And, and honestly, the, the places that I've lived, um, being really more recently from Gainesville, mm-hmm. uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, I understand that uh, the Institute um, has a lot of partnerships um, here in the community already. So what hospitals and centers do you currently partner with? Sure. So I, I do um, hip and knee replacement, which, which I know we'll talk about uh, in a little bit probably. But um, we operate at the HCA Florida Ocala Health System, predominantly at their West Marion uh, campus, but also sometimes um, at the main hospital uh, at Ocala. And then the surgery center of Ocala um, located just um, just off State Road 200 behind okay. the wall. And, um, you know, when you look at uh, the instances where um, folks may may receive a procedure at the surgery center versus the main hospital, what what's kind of some of your determination? Is it is it the complexity of the procedure? Is it that it's same day? Um, how do you make that determination? That's a great question. I think historically, most joint replacements were performed in a hospital. And I, I think back to not many years ago when I was a, a resident and even in early practice, it was not uncommon for patients to stay in the hospital for three or four days. But as our techniques have improved and, and our perioperative pain management and, and early recovery protocols have really um, started to blossom, the length of stay has shortened quite a bit. And then now most patients really are, are candidates for sort of same day or outpatient surgery. So there are still some uh, medical conditions or, or uh, social determinants that, that can sort of preclude patients mm-hmm. from same-day surgery. But um, for most of us, uh, most, uh, you know, well over three-quarters of our patients are candidates for outpatient surgery. Oh, wow. 
that that large of a percentage. It That's is, great. yeah. It's 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 um it's great for physicians. It's great for patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, as an orthopedic surgeon, I know you handle a, a wide variety of cases. But um, what areas do you um, specialize in? So I'm I'm board certified and fellowship trained in hip and knee uh, arthroplasty, which is just a fancy word for replacement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent an entire year really dedicated to uh, studying and and performing more complex uh, hip and knee replacements, which really gives me the skill set to kind of handle uh, patients who have um, who need knee or, or hip replacements for uh, non-degenerative conditions. So you know arthritis from previous fractures or infections. Uh, some people with, with what's called inflammatory arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, as well as redos, um, which really is probably um, where, where sort of my, my true kind of uh, skill lies, I, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, but redoing failed hip or knee replacements of, for all sorts of, of causes. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're seeing any trends in terms of replacements? Do you feel like you're, you're doing more replacements on younger patients, or has that kind of stayed the same over the years? Yeah, I would first say that the sheer volume of joint replacements being performed in general for all comers has grown dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you look at 2015 data, which seems long ago, but really wasn't, we were doing about 600,000 joints a year. By 2040, that projection is, um, that number, I should say, is projected to go to 2 million. And then by 2060, uh, 5 million. So it's growing at a mm-hmm. fairly um, rapid rate. And I think this is probably multifactorial. One is the aging population. Uh, we know now that this is sort of the, the first time in history that the, the age over 65 will outnumber the age under 65. And I think also we're starting to do um, uh, joint replacements in younger patients, as you had mentioned, historically, mm-hmm. joints were reserved really for elderly patients with just conventional wear and tear um, arthritis. But now um, what we're seeing is we're doing... Um, joint replacements on younger people due to the the, the obesity epidemic, which we know accelerates degenerative changes, Um, but also the improvement in the materials and the implants afford us the ability to provide replacements in younger, more active patients without the risk of it sort of wearing out too Mm -hmm. soon. Mm -hmm. And and you mentioned wearing out. Typically, how long, if you have a total knee replacement, how long is that is that good for? Is there is there an expiration date? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, no expiration date. But we we say that for most people, it's about a one percent rate per year that it would have to be done. So if you take a fifty year old patient mm-hmm. by age seventy five, it means there's a one in four chance that they'd have to have that knee redone, and that's for all causes. So there are many reasons why a, a knee replacement could fail. Um, so when you lump those all together, it ends up being that that roughly 1% per mm-hmm. year. So still still very, very likely. And I tell most patients on the buy, um, if the surgery is indicated and you have no real immediate complications, we would expect that that would be the sort of one operation to last you for the rest of your life for that joint. And do you utilize um, any specialized techniques or equipment that helps reduce scarring or helps uh, maybe the patient improve their recovery time? So I, I think the terms, um, you know, muscle sparing or minimally invasive, they're buzzwords in orthopedics, I, I think, like many, many mm-hmm. surgical specialties. Uh, and I think it's often synonymous with less pain and improved recovery. But, I, you know, and I'd be remiss to say that I don't use these uh, because I do think it it creates a more gentle operation. But I think it's important, you know, for our listeners and for patients to understand that, well, these are really exciting concepts. And, and I think, there's a lot um, of enthusiasm around them, you know, regarding specialized approaches and techniques. 
I think there's the difference that these make is probably small compared to the value added from preoperative optimization, so improving a patient's medical condition before surgery, Mm -hmm. education, and then really an open discussion that frames the treatment plans. Um, I kind of tell patients I equate it to a a runner training for a race. The shoes may make a difference, but that's probably pretty small in comparison to a structured training program and some psychological and emotional preparation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also in managing expectations, I'm sure that that, you know, some patients, particularly those who may have prolonged a procedure, they think they're going to be like, get up and, and be running a lot sooner, right, than maybe the reality is. Um, how, how do you partner with, you know, um, folks providing like physical therapy and things like that with recovery? Um, what do you do in your practice to, to help with that recovery? I think the, the recovery process actually starts before the surgery ever takes place. So mm-hmm. I think many patients benefit from preoperative physical therapy. Some of that is conditioning, but a lot of it is just education so that on the day of surgery or the days after surgery, they've really already gone through the motions and the steps, and it's really just sort of executing the plan that we've laid out for them. Mm-hmm. We have physical therapy at our at our clinic, uh, but there are really a lot of great physical therapy centers uh, throughout Ocala that we've really sort of informally partnered with. Um, so very, very fortunate that this area has a fairly high quality um, uh, setup or options for our patients. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what strategies are you utilizing in your practice um, to help manage um, pain, um, but also reduce the risk of addiction after surgery? So pain has been a, a, a pretty important topic um, when we look across um, sort of political and social um, forums. And, and I'm actually really glad you asked about this because this is something that has really been a passion of mine for the last several years. If we look at prescribing practices, orthopedic surgeons are the third um, highest prescribers of narcotics, the largest actually surgical specialty. So I think we realize that it's really um, important for us to take a lot of ownership in, in, in making change. Uh, and so for me, in addition to some changes that I, I had historically made within our practice, I have several publications and I worked on a committee with the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Uh, to develop a clinical practice guideline for perioperative pain control, specifically for patients undergoing joint replacement. So I think the what that really ends up, you know, today for our patients and at FOI is that we have this fairly comprehensive, we call it multidisciplinary um, pain control strategy, and that means that we utilize several different types of non-narcotic medications that allow us to minimize the use of opioid narcotics for pain control. I think, moreover, the patients are then sort of stratified or we, we sort of put them into four different prescription pathways based on their individual needs mm-hmm. so that we really avoid the under or over prescribing, which tends to be more problematic, like you said, mm-hmm. um, when you when you look at the risk of sort of what's called super therapeutic use or addiction. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that, you know, some of the screening and the conversations you have with your patients you know, it does it come into play patients that, that may, you know, have had a history or, or maybe currently consume a lot of alcohol or other things that are in their system? Does that come into play as well in terms of that, you know, what they're, what they're coming to you with existing? Absolutely. So it's, it's really we look at several things when we decide which of those sort of pathways patients go down. One is the severity of disease. So patients who have had uh, what's called post-traumatic arthritis or say mm-hmm. they, they develop arthritis from a previous trauma or they have hardware that needs to be removed, or scar tissue, anything that technically makes the surgery more complicated is at a higher risk for more pain. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, patients, as you said, who have a history of, of super therapeutic use, or even patients who are on occasional narcotics are at a, at a slightly higher risk. So 
we again tailor their narcotic prescriptions based on the surgery and the individual. And, and as you had said, sometimes the expectation, but that's really, we, we want to make sure that we're not, we're not tailoring the, we're not doing higher narcotics for patients who expect to have less pain. Mm-hmm. I think as you had said, it's really important to understand um, what, what a patient's expectation is and set those as realistic expectations. W- what I do is, is by and large, what's called elective surgery. So patients have a choice. It's really not life or limb threatening. And so what we're trying to create is some, some satisfaction and satisfaction is usually sort of predicated on realistic expectation. And, and working in, in healthcare, you often see patients, you know, kind of in, in their worst moments sometimes, whether they're coming to you in pain or they sustained a, an injury that has them very concerned or, or, or they're afraid of what their next steps might be in their treatment plan. So how do you approach this as a physician? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. A nice follow-up to the to one we just spoke about because, you know, I see patients, again, who are oftentimes disabled from, from these degenerative or or post-traumatic conditions they have been knee in. I think the most important thing to understand, though, is that pain and disability are very personal experiences. Patients perceive and project pain in different ways. And while the mechanical symptoms, so the the actual, the bone-on-bone or the, mm-hmm. the muscle tearing or the inflammation is the is the most prominent or the most glaring, it's usually the emotional and psychological aspects that are equally, if not more, important to address. And I think, unfortunately, orthopedics, orthopedic surgeons, and, and maybe the medical community in general often overlooks this in our patients and, and this, this population specifically. So, you know, and patients tend to have very specific functional limitations that bring them in to see a surgeon. Usually it's, it's one specific thing that they can no longer do is why they came mm-hmm. to see me. So I think identifying these it really creates sort of early goals that then kind of shapes and inspires them, you know, in their recovery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And recognizing, obviously, you know, that, I mean, how, what do they say? The certain percentage of recovery is mental, right? Yep, it's exactly. the physical aspect, but it's, it's mentally that you're willing to put the work in and, and have a good outlook and know that, you know, this too shall pass. And, and, you know, recovery sometimes is, doesn't go as, as planned, right? It may take a little longer. You may have some setbacks, but that doesn't mean you won't get there. I think that's exactly right. For sure, for sure. So I know that there there are many um, orthopedic groups um, that are seeing patients now in Ocala, but what sets the uh, Florida Orthopedic Institute apart? So I think one thing that sets us apart from from any any group in the state is that we've really focused on high-level expert physicians. So every FOI physician um, is fellowship trained in their subspecialty. So that means in addition to their, their residency, typically five years, We've all undergone some additional um, subspecialty training in these specific types of procedures. I had mentioned earlier that, that I did one year, um, you know, exclusively looking at hip and knee replacement surgeries. And I think that's important because orthopedic surgery, it's really grown by leaps and bounds, uh, you know, when we look at the sort of the breadth of diagnosis and treatment options. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to get care from someone who specializes in your specific diagnosis or procedure. And I think that really improves the outcomes and expertise. Mm-hmm. Locally, our Ocala group is somewhat unique, I think, because we were all sort of previously academic or university um, surgeons. So we were heavily involved in research and education and advancing orthopedics and, and training the next next generation of surgeons. So I think we're all really excited to bring this sort of high-level um, high-quality, specialized expert care to the members of the community. Mm-hmm. And being in education, I'm sure you're always up on kind of the latest techniques and procedures. What's what's next on the horizon for orthopedic surgery, even, you know, a decade from now? Where where are things heading and, and what are what kind of has you most excited? 
Yeah. So we hit on one earlier. I think outpatient surgery or, or same day surgery has really grown grown rapidly. I think sort of both organically from the, the you know, I said the, the surgical techniques and the, the implants, but but really also COVID. COVID mm-hmm. really accelerated that that push because all of a sudden patients didn't need to be in a hospital. Um, but from a, a um, tech sort of stand, I think, I think the biggest thing is the intro, uh, introduction and integration of technology, really robotics and navigation, um, and then what are called patient engagement platforms. So in joint replacement, robotic-assisted technology just involves the use of, of a robotic arm, mm-hmm. and that assists with the operation with, with the goal of improving um, the accuracy and reproducibility. Patient engagement platforms are, are sort of software-based programs that, that facilitate two-way communication uh, during the recovery process that, that improves the sort of connectivity um, and education uh, for patients and, and surgeons. Like a, like a text texture doc, yeah. So chatbots yeah. <laughs> or um, some a lot of times they you can download or upload instructional videos or therapy exercises. So what other specialties has your group brought to Ocala? So we offer a pretty comprehensive um, musculoskeletal service. Uh, we cover uh, major all of the major subspecialties with orthopedics, including uh, surgical and non-surgical sports medicine, um, as well as um, hand. And, and to be honest, you know, pretty much all comers for any sprains or strains, we see patients uh, as young as two and all the way up to, you know, over 100. Mm-hmm. So I think um, if, if any of the listeners out there are having any issues, uh, giving us a call, we'll certainly, certainly be able to take care of you. And now a word from our sponsor. Hello, I am Charlie Douglas with the Douglas Law Firm. We are a full-service law firm with many practice areas to serve your particular needs. The Douglas Law Firm is located in downtown Ocala at 110 North Magnolia Avenue. Give us a call today for a free consultation or visit us at dhclawyers.com. So um, we provide our guests with the opportunity to highlight a nonprofit that they're passionate about. Um, So what organization did you want to highlight today? I'd highlight the Marion Senior Services. Um, so the senior population uh, is particularly near and dear to my heart, as I said. I mean, this, this makes up most of my patient population. So I think our professional goals naturally align, and that, that being to promote the independence and well-being of our seniors. Mm-hmm. Great organization. And now it's time for our lightning round questions. <laughs> um, so, okay, you ready? Sure. Ready, sure. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so what uh, trait do you value most for members of your team? I think um, the word commitment for some reason stands out in my mind. Uh, I want team members who are committed to individual and team excellence, committed to sort of the team above all else, and then sort of committed to our patients. Mm-hmm. Top band in your playlist right now. It's funny. I um, that That's a tough one. I, I I hate to say I listen to everything, but I, I probably can't pick one band, but I would say anything sort of 90s country. That is... Nice. That is, okay. Um, that is my typical go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's nostalgic and, and relaxing. Brings you back to a simpler time, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not to sound like one of the songs, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it does. Makes you feel good. So what was your first job and what did you learn from that experience? So I, I started working at 15. Um, I remember my very vividly my dad dropping me off uh, every day to work. I was an assistant greenskeeper at a local golf course. And so it was, um, you know, as, as I, I'm sure many people who golf, you see those, those folks out there, it was certainly very physically demanding. Um, but I think, you know, in addition to the sort of physical and, and mental discipline and, and conditioning, it really taught me the importance of careful planning 
and execution. Um, whenever you see people mowing a green or mowing, even mowing your own lawn, you, it's really intriguing to me how people do it different ways. And there's an emphasis on efficiency and, and the aesthetics at the end. So that really was my introduction to that. And, and a lot of those kind of principles, I think, carry over into my, to my job. Mm-hmm. I mean, the things that I do are very, um, I think, technical. They require a lot of planning. And, and in orthopedics, it's kind of nice. I get to see my work fairly immediately, mm-hmm. um, sort of like I did back then. Um, probably more importantly, it introduced me to the game of golf, which, which I love. So and probably now having done that job of, of fixing others' divots, yeah. right, and all the mess that, like, right, a cart, a wayward yeah. cart can make in the greens, you're, yeah. you're probably a little more conscious of, of maybe the, the care that you provide when you're out there on the course, right? Because exactly right. <laughs> there's someone doing it. There's someone fixing it. <laughs> um, and who is a leader that you admire? So I, I, um, I got my MBA uh, about a year and a half ago, and, and when I was, when I was during, going through that process, they always talked about a lot of quotes from Warren Buffett, uh, sort of one of the most famous American investors and mm-hmm. CEO of one of the largest investment firms re- really in, in the world. Um, but he, he he's always noted for sort of his, even though he was probably one of the wealthiest men and, and the most successful investors, he always adhered to a lot of principles of value. Um, and he was very frugal. And he always sort of um, had these very genuine and insightful quotes that I, I always have kind of liked those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I just thought a lot of them were really, um, really cool. You know, as a, I'm actually a, a father of, of two young girls. And one of the ones I remember him always saying was, you know, giving your children enough so that they can do anything, but not so much that they have to do nothing. Oh, I um, like that. Or, you know, yeah. someone, someone is sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. Things, mm-hmm. you know, just very good quips. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, when I try to be try to be a leader, I, I think no matter how successful we are, it's really important to sort of stay humble, and and uh, that's just something that I've always I thought was was. Well, thank you again. Again, we were here with uh, Dr. Justin Dean, orthopedic surgeon with the Florida Orthopedic Institute. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Catalyst hosted by the Ocala Metro Chamber and Economic Partnership, sponsored by Douglas Law Firm, and recorded live at Wiley Productions Podcast Studios. New episodes, guests, and perspectives on leadership premiere twice a month. Follow us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Have a suggestion for a future guest? Email us at thecatalyst at ocalacep.com.